0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Stacked Quality Pancakes, featuring made-to-order pancakes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner Monday through Thursday. Open till 11 on Friday and Saturday. Located in historic downtown Logan at 31 North Main. Menu available at stacked-pancakes.com.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting here the editors of the Atlantic magazine, The election of Donald Trump in the early days of his presidency have driven many Americans to rummage through history in search of context and understanding. Trump himself has been compared to historical figures ranging from Ronald Reagan to Henry Ford, from Andrew Jackson to Benito Mussolini. His steps have been condemned as unprecedented by his critics and praised as historic by his supporters. We do have a historian with us on the program today to provide some context. Uh, Julian Zelizer is uh, Malcolm Stevenson Forbes, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. He's a CNN political analyst, columnist for Atlantic Magazine, author most recently of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society, and editor of a new book, Presidency of Barack Obama, A First Historical Assessment. Professor Zelizer, welcome to the program. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I want to start with uh, the article that I quoted the editors of The Atlantic from um, had the title, Why Some Historians Should Be Pundits. And uh, they had you and a uh, a colleague, uh, Morton Keller from Brandeis, uh, debating this uh, topic um, and, and this came up after Harvard University's Moshe Temkin published a, a piece in New York Times uh, titled Historians Should Not Be Pundits. You took the opposite uh, side. What, what was your argument?
2: Yeah, I believe that there is a lot of room for historians to participate uh, in public debate, especially in times like this. I think often they can be helpful to putting events in context, to helping understand where um, you know, political issues and political events that we're watching, where they came from, what the roots and foundations are. And uh, while a lot of historians can do it poorly or they can do it in ways that are not productive, I think there is space uh, for historians to be part of this conversation, and it's actually important to have that. Otherwise, all of the history is discussed by people who have a thinner understanding of, of what actually happened in the past.
1: Uh, you've written uh, um, about this word "unprecedented," and I found uh, that column and this other columns very interesting because that's a word that's thrown around a lot, especially with President Trump. Unprecedented, and your argument was that uh, yeah, there are maybe a couple of ways where the current president is unprecedented, but we should be careful using that word.
2: I think that's really important. It's it's clearly and understandably been one of the terms you hear almost every day. Uh, When something outrageous happens or when a controversial decision happens, someone is there saying, this is unprecedented, it's the first time anything like this has happened. And when you say that, you often miss uh, the ways in which something President Trump or someone else is doing grows out of our institutions, it grows out of political changes that we've seen in recent decades, uh, and we've seen variations of of something like this. So, for example, uh, if you're talking about the recent debate over immigration, uh, while the separation of children from the families certainly might be a, a pretty uh, aggressive step, we've seen a harder line in immigration policy that's been really taking shape since the 1990s. And it's important to understand that. Uh, and it's important to distinguish things that President Trump Again, as an example, does that are truly new, that truly have no roots in American politics from other parts of his presidency, such as using executive action aggressively, that we've seen many, many times before. And if we don't make those distinctions, it's it's really hard to understand exactly what's going on in Washington and and where those red flags should should be waved.
1: What uh, what are the unprecedented things, then?
2: Well, obviously the most unprecedented part of his presidency is, is the way he communicates to the public. And part of this is the technology available to him, Twitter. Uh, part of it is the way our, our television news system and radio system works. Uh, and part of it is him and what he's willing to say. So he does communicate with the public in a more direct, instantaneous, unscripted, and unfiltered fashion than any president uh, I could think of. Uh, even presidents who tried to directly communicate to the public, like Franklin Roosevelt through radio, did it in a more careful and deliberative way. So I think he's really introduced and pioneered uh, a new way of um, of speaking, and he's also willing to say things that are not true uh, in a way that other presidents haven't. Uh, not that other presidents haven't lied, uh, but he definitely plays with fact and fiction in a way that we haven't seen in the White House for some time.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded uh, the uh, the incoming vice president uh, Harry Truman famously said about FDR that he said the problem with the president is he lies. Um, but uh, the, the, you you think that uh, the, the I guess the the way in which this president is, is using untruths is, is unprecedented.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I've written about how presidential lies are an essential part of the office, and and I can give you a list of almost every president from every party, and, and things they've said that aren't true, some with huge consequences, like uh, Lyndon Johnson and, and the acceleration of the Vietnam War around the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, an incident that actually didn't happen, uh, to many other examples like that. And so... Lying is something presidents do. They're often hiding a policy decision. They're often trying to explain why they did something in a way that's palatable to the public. Uh, I think what, what's a little different, though, is, is it's really about scale and scope. Uh, President Trump does this all the time on things small and large. And previous presidents, when they lied, they were careful about it. They didn't want to do it all the time. Uh, and they were more constrained in their own mind, I think, about doing this frequently. Uh, whereas today, I don't think the president has that kind of internal check. So you're just seeing every day almost all kinds of statements coming out of the president's Twitter feed where you really can't have confidence in their veracity.
1: Well, talk a little bit, have you talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, what opponents see is uh, decries uh, incivility, you know, the the, the crudeness, uh, taking taking the discourse uh, down, um, and I guess supporters would say, well, you you know, you gotta gotta break some eggs to make an omelet. This is a disruptive, a disruptor. Um, where would you put this in in terms of historical context?
2: Yeah, this is a place where I see President Trump uh, more as a product of an era rather than the cause, similarly with with some of his opponents. Uh, We have had many decades now, really at least since the 1970s, where people have been writing and talking about the breakdown in civility. And, you know, they've measured it in different ways from the number of times members of Congress from each party are willing to compromise with each other to the actual rhetoric that parties are willing to use against one another in the media or even on the floor of Congress. And and we've seen a breakdown happening for a long time now. And you can study President Clinton and the terms that some of his opponents used about him. Uh, and you can do the same uh, with President Bush and, and the vehemence through which some of his opponents W. Bush uh, talked about his wartime policies. And we've seen civility really has gone by the wayside as politics has become more polarized along party lines. And so here again, Trump certainly is willing to talk this way in a way that's different than other presidents. He dives in without any uh, hesitation while other presidents tried most of the time not to sound like many of the people around them but the breakdown in civility is not the reason uh, is not caused by president trump in many ways it's the reason we have this style of politics
1: do you think uh, you know it's uh, i guess fruitless to speculate or predict but uh, i guess that's what I'm asking you to do is is this is this a cycle or are we going to be in this for a long time do you think
2: yeah i think that's a good question and and there's this big question when the president, when we have a new president, uh, when we have a new Congress, is it possible that this is going to change, that we'll have a reversal back to where we were at some point? And and that's possible, but it's not likely. Uh, I I think once you understand President Trump and the politics of his presidency as a product of an era uh, where our institutions have worked in a particular way, where opponents of each other have seen each other and talked about each other in a certain way, then you see it's not going to disappear anytime soon. Uh, You might have a president who follows Trump who's more restrained about it, who uh, is is at least sometimes trying to be uh, less aggressive. But the partisan polarization that's the bottom uh, line, that is the driving force of a lot of what we see, is not going to disappear anytime soon until our institutions work differently, until we reform parts of our political process. So, uh, you might have a cleaned up version of a President Trump, but you're still going to have the same kind of politics in the years ahead.
1: Uh, so Trump is a product, uh, you know, not as a causer of, of uh, divisions and the uh, I guess what some see as incivility, etc., polarization. Um, how do you think that gets solved? Because I think uh, no matter where you are on the divide, I think a lot of people are distressed about the increasing divide.
2: Yeah, some of it won't go away. This is the era. We've had other eras that are very uh, divisive, such as uh, the late 19th century, and, and they don't disappear soon because this is how people feel, and the divisions over issues are really there. Uh, and and they don't just dissipate uh, and, until some of the big political questions in front of us go away, and, and they might not. Uh, but the best way in which we at least temper these instincts in our politics has been through government reform or uh, reforming the political process. So there's many areas people look to. One area is uh, how we create congressional districts. And can you have a different system? where each party isn't able to gerrymander districts so precisely uh, so that candidates are constantly trying to placate the activists in the electorate uh, you can talk about nurturing and uh... and promoting different kinds of of news media uh... that are not as some are on television for example very partisan in how they present the news uh, some talk finally about campaign finance reform that, Until you do that, uh, the weight of money that goes to candidates will come from organizations that insist political parties toe the line on on key sets of issues or from party leaders who control the purse strings and won't give campaign funds to anyone who defects. And so those kinds of reforms are some examples, if you think big, about how you can get to the underlying pressures that create incentives constantly on politicians uh, to be very polarized in their
1: outlook. One thing you've written, uh, I think it's a kind of a, a running theme, uh, nostalgia. We have an endless nostalgia for how things worked better in the past. And that's not necessarily so, and I guess it can it can affect how we see things uh, currently. Uh, I wonder, maybe take uh, off the top of my head that you just mentioned the media. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we have this conception that uh, we, we were all gathered around the three networks in the past, and at least we all agreed on a set of facts, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Political discourse was better, higher, in the past.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that is an ongoing theme to try to refute that uh, or to try to shatter that conception, because the more you look back at different eras and, and actually look at what people were saying and the problems we faced, you see that every era has has dysfunction and so looking at the media as an example we now nostalgically talk about the 1940s and 50s and 60s as this great period for american journalism when the great voices in newspaper and and on television and radio were were telling it like it is and providing this objective journalism that was very different than what we have today in many outlets and when you look back at the history, there were really big problems in those eras. First of all, the rhetoric could often be uh, just as divisive in, in certain parts of the media uh, about how people spoke to each other. Uh, often that objective style of journalism allowed politicians to say whatever they wanted, and no one checked them. Uh, the story of Senator Joseph McCarthy was he would accuse people of being communist sympathizers, and a lot of journalists were scared to write anything, to provide any analysis. So his accusations made their way into national newspapers, uh, and they stuck. And so now we look back and say that might not have been the best way for journalists to report on what he was doing. Even with Vietnam, uh, for a long time in the 60s, most of the press took their information directly from the military and the administration, and it really wasn't until the end of the decade you got a more critical look about the war. So uh, so that golden age of journalism had some pretty big problems, which is why journalism would change dramatically in the 70s and 80s.
1: Hmm. Uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Julian Zelizer from uh, Princeton University. He is a CNN political analyst who writes for The Atlantic as well. And uh, we're glad to have him on the program uh, today uh, putting current politics in historical uh, context. Uh, He's author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. Many other books as well. Editor of a book, uh, The Presidency of Barack Obama, A First Historical Assessment. When we come back from this break, I want to uh, take Professor Zelizer to, uh, I think, a very important column in The Atlantic. It's called America's America's Mirror on the Wall. It talks about how President Trump uh, is following a, a long tradition in seeking to... Um, to to mine for political gold uh, divisions in American society. And uh, we'll talk about that when we come back.
2: Indonesian textiles use dyes derived from indigo leaves, turmeric roots, and morinda bark to produce different colors, demonstrating knowledge that Indonesian weavers have of their tropical environment. Styles and designs such as batik and akat vary by region
1: throughout Indonesia and can inform on material origins and trade relationships between regions. Symbols and patterns of Indonesian textiles also inform
2: us about outside influences. Octagonal patterns reveal a history and progression of Islamic influences in Indonesia, and the integration of yellow triangular shapes,
1: distinctive of Indian patterns, show a strong cultural influence from India. Examining textiles' details tell us not only about how it was made, but cultural processes
2: behind the product. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You?, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu.
1: We're back with uh, Professor Julian Zelizer. Uh, He is Malcolm Stevenson Forbes, Class of 1941, Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. He's a CNN political analyst, columnist for the Atlantic author uh, most recently of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great uh, Society. Uh, Julian Zelizer um, was very interested in this, this column titled America's Mirror on the Wall. Um, along, for people who decry this, especially, that they say President Trump is, uh, for political expediency, uh, doing his best to exacerbate uh, uh, racial divides, other divides uh, in the country, um, this line from your uh, from your column there, in the end, you say, maybe this is what makes Trump so disturbing. The president is as American as apple pie.
2: yeah, uh, that was a that was a tough column to write, uh, but it was one that I felt was important uh, as an issue to talk about that part of what what President Trump does uh, when he is at his most controversial and he's often exploiting some really difficult social questions and social tensions uh, is to play on on uh, angrier voices and more divisive parts of our political system that that have been there for a long time that have never really gone away uh, and that again are, are certainly not being caused by him uh, but rather he's he's willing to to dive into those areas. So one example is obviously on immigration, where the president's taking a, a pretty hard line on immigration, in the, especially in the past uh, few weeks uh, with this family separation policy. And, and there I have in this article really a, a history of, of opposition to immigration, of variations of nativism that have made it into mainstream politics, such as in the 1920s uh when congress signs legislation to stop the inflow of immigrants from eastern europe uh that have a pretty strong hold on our our political system uh another area i talk about are race relations and the divisions in race relations which at several points in his presidency and candidacy uh he has been taken to task for playing into those and uh, this is not at all to excuse what he does uh, or, or to justify it, but to say he's actually tapping into a unfortunately long tradition we have in American politics of politicians were willing to do this. Uh, and so that's an example where I try to use the history to root him uh, and to say that we need to look a little more at the electorate about our culture, not just as him as an outlier, uh, to understand why this is taking place and and why this is such a important part of his presidency.
1: Yeah, you you uh, it, you remind us, uh, you know, Richard Nixon's Bill to law and order, that Rachel Tinges, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, welfare queens, uh, George H. W. Bush Willie Horton campaign. Uh, this, uh, I guess, the the difference yeah. some have pointed out is it's, it's kind of veiled, and President Trump kind of takes the veil off a little bit.
2: I think that's true, and and that that I wrote about a little bit in in response to to the immigration debates in the last few weeks. And I I think uh, this kind of criticism in the examples you just mentioned is is something that's been discussed for a while. When Richard Nixon spoke about law and order in 1968, and, and even as president, many critics instantly said he was just playing on uh racial tensions that came out of the riots in new york and detroit in 1967 he was really using that to rail against civil rights protesters there's data now archival data from the nixon presidency that that was actually exactly what he was trying to do and to create division in the democratic coalition and and ronald reagan when he spoke about welfare queens or when he talked about state rights uh, in certain locations uh, that were the site of civil rights protests was also taken to task for exploiting these kinds of divisions for political gain, and I think the difference is that we see this without any kind of subtlety. Under President Trump, uh, we see it done in aggressive fashion, and and using language uh, at key points in the Trump presidency that isn't hidden. It's not a code word. He'll talk directly uh, about um, about. These kinds of questions, such as his famous comment about African countries a few months back, um, but this is an example where we need to see. If this is something that has happened many times, and it's a deep, more deeply rooted than we think. If we only focus on President Trump,
1: let's see, quoting from one of your columns here. Um, president Trump is creating his own version of this pl- American political tradition. Not only has he tapped directly into divisive ideas from the past, he sold the trade off to his supporters, white world voters who stand behind him. Trump says we need a president intent on attacking other segments of the country if they want to survive. And going back to this idea of uh, for those who oppose President Trump and and see this as stoking divisions that should not be stoked, um, in your you know your thesis that the problem is us right the the uh, mm-hmm. there there are many voters who see the world exactly this way, and president Trump is just appealing to those voters
2: yeah, I think that's important I, I was i was just being interviewed by someone in europe who was asking about recent Gallup polls that show president trump's support remains you know relatively good uh compared to other second term pres- or other presidents in the june of their second year it remains very strong with republicans now it's at 90 percent and they're asking how do you explain this and what accounts for it when there's many people around the world who who don't like what the president is doing and and like i said the the answer is, is kind of obvious that he has a lot of support and that ultimately there are many people who stand by his policies and and his administration Uh, It's under 50 percent nationally, but it's at 45 percent, which is not an insignificant part of of the electorate. And so uh, President Trump won in a democratic system, and that means that a lot of what he does, what he says, what he stands for uh, is rooted in part of what the electorate wants. And until we then start to scratch beneath the surface and look at what's going on in the electorate, why these ideas are appealing or what's driving the support, uh, then our, our our feel for where the united states is in 1968 would remain or will remain paper thin mm.
1: one of the things you uh you, you uh, posit in uh, in your columns is something that that uh that i uh, very much agree with and i've i wanted to uh, you know I yell at the tv sometimes when when the other uh, side is uh, is presented and that is that i I've been increasingly convinced, and you write this that uh, for President Trump's supporters for his base, um economic issues are much less important than the cultural issues
2: yeah, this this I was writing about a, a series of studies actually that have come out on this uh, by various kinds of social scientists trying to understand what was behind the vote. And initially, uh, if you look at the post, uh, election uh, analysis. Much of it was about the economic anxieties of, of workers and uh, the way in which the economy has left many Americans behind, and that this ultimately turned voters, for example, in states like Wisconsin, uh, toward the uh, Republican ticket rather than the Democratic ticket. And the more we learn, that's simply not the case. There's not a clear correlation between the economic well-being of a lot of Trump voters, and they're voting for Trump. Some were doing actually better uh, by the time they voted for Trump. And the more we look, it, it's really uh, a sense of uh, the effects of a changing society and the diversification and uh, pluralism that has become part of American life uh, rubbed some voters the wrong way. And been a lot written on the anxiety, status anxiety. Uh, that a lot of the voters felt that their place, a lot of white Christian voters, that their place is is diminishing, and that he appealed to that part of the electorate. So it's not to discount the economy, but it's clear there was a lot more going on, and that explains a lot of the issues Trump tends to focus on, and the policies, which often weren't about economics. They were about other issues like immigration
1: and continue to be uh, yeah immigration other, yeah mainly cultural issues um so are are we in this era destined to because there you know more than half the country dis, disapproves of what, where mr trump is is going um are we destined to lurch be, between the those two extremes just depending on you know, those 70,000 voters in those three states that uh, won Mr. Trump the election in 2016, that could be reversed, I, I guess, in 2020, and we just lurch back and forth.
2: It could be. I, we are in an era where we don't really have the kind of landslide elections that you had in thirty two or 1964 or even in 1984. Increasingly, uh, cam, campaigns are really just about a few states where much of the electorate is locked into place. Uh, people will not move from red to blue or vice versa. And so you hone in on states like Florida, Ohio, or Colorado, where there's the possibility that the purple part of the electorate will flip the election one way or another. Uh, and and it, it really ends up being campaigns that are decided by a handful of voters. Uh, even though millions and millions are voting, the decisive voices are really only in a handful of states. And I think that's not going to change uh, for for a while. And all the polls that we're seeing now uh, suggest or show pretty clearly President Trump is clearly not convincing the voters who didn't like him to come on board. Uh, so I think the next election will be the same. The only question was, was President Trump so divisive that he had the opposite effect? He had the possibility in two twenty. 2020 of the electorate being so shaken, the Democrats could actually remake the map and and have bigger support. But the polls are showing the Republicans are not going anywhere. And so I think you're going to have this veering back and forth kind of politics for a while. And that's the kind of politics that fosters intense polarization up top, uh, because neither side wants to lose this huge base that they are counting on as they go for those handful of other votes.
1: What uh, what do you think will be the biggest issues in the midterms uh, coming up? Just about four months away, the the president seems to think that, you know, despite uh, the, the the very bad optics recently of the kids being taken from the parents, uh, he seems to believe that uh, immigration is going to be a winner for for him and the Republicans.
2: Yeah, I think I, I do think he feels this is a winner and. Uh, at least the initial read of what's happening is is he, he might be right, at least within the Republican electorate, that parts of the Republican electorate, large parts of it, support the overall policy, not necessarily the children being separated, but a harder line on border crossing uh, and asylum. And so his bet is that most Republicans are on his side and are not going to, Either not vote because of that or vote for a Democrat because of that. And at the same time, he is looking for issues uh, that in midterms will excite Republicans. The, The point of a midterm, the strategy of a midterm is turnout. And how do you turn people out? The goal is usually to get them worked up, to excite them. And his bet is that regardless of what some conservative pundits say, This is the kind of issue that will do that. This is red meat that will ensure uh, that people will come out to vote come November. And so there is a logic behind that argument that I don't think Democrats should discount. And uh, it, it could actually work in the Republicans' favor, even though there's many things also working against the Republicans going into these midterms, including the fact that historically the party of the president does poorly in midterms. That's almost always the case.
1: What about uh, 2020? Let me ask it this way. If the election were held today, do you think President Trump gets reelected?
2: I think he certainly could. Uh, I think 2020 is a true toss-up, and I think there's many ways to look at what's happened in the recent year and and see the outlines of, of how Trump is going to go about rebuilding his 2016 coalition, uh, which is you know one-third loyal Republicans who will vote for whoever the Republican candidate is, one-third the the Trump fanatics who just love this politician, believe in him and will do anything possible to make sure he's in office and and finally the the disaffected Democrats uh, who are not numerous but Who are looking for him and looking for something different and and i think where things stand today you know it's not impossible to see that working for reelection and and let's remember the economy is doing very well Uh, when you have a a 3.9 or 3.8 uh unemployment rate historically low unemployment rate whoever the incumbent is uh... is going to be in a pretty good position uh... to have people keep that person in office and and that's where things are right now uh... and at the same time it's unclear what the democrats are putting together who their candidates will be will they have a better grassroots organizational strategy than they had in two thousand sixteen these are open questions so so i think it it truly is a toss-up thinking ahead to two twenty and it might be that he does poorly in the midterms in 2018, but is still in relatively good shape for a re-election. Bit.
1: You're listening to Access U i Tom Williams, and my guest is Julian Zelizer. He's a historian at Princeton University. He's a CNN political analyst and columnist for the Atlantic. He's author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society, among many other books. We recorded this conversation uh, yesterday, but uh, would love to get your comment on anything that we're talking about here. And uh, you can comment to upraccess at gmail.com. access at gmail.com. Coming up in our final segment with Professor Zelizer. Um, Professor Zelizer had a recent uh, column. Uh, he said that... Uh, Uh, The program Roseanne, now canceled, uh, tried to show a good example of how to reach across the divide in your family. He says there's a much better example, a show from a previous decade. talk about that and much more following this break. Hi, this is uh, Liz Kirschbaumer
2: from Vancouver, British Columbia. Yeah, I really, really love Bullseye. It's so well
1: curated. You know, it's, it's a bullseye. He hits the target just right every time.
2: I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, Boots Riley, founder of the rap group The Coup, and writer-director of the new movie Sorry to Bother You. That's on the next Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.
1: As Denny approached the river, he felt as though his life had been a piece of bark on that river, just going along, not thinking at all, headed toward the
0: waterfall.
2: Ellen Burstyn reads Elizabeth Strout. This week on Selected Shorts. From PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Sunday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. President Trump thinks his tough immigration policies will be good for Republicans in the fall elections. Our issue is strong borders,
1: no crime. Their issue is open borders... Let MS-13 all over our country. That's what's going to happen. We'll ask our political strategists. That's next time on Here and Now.
2: Join us this morning at 11 on Utah
1: Public Radio. If you just joined us, we're talking with Julian Zelizer. He's a historian at Princeton University, CNN political analyst, columnist at The Atlantic, author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. That's the latest of his uh, uh, several books. Uh, also, editor of a book, uh, the presidency of Barack Obama: A First Historical Assessment. Professor Zellerzer I wanted to talk about a, a column uh, titled "What Trump Era Democrats Can Learn from LBJ." One of the points you made in that article was that LBJ, for all of his talents um, and and the, the great accomplishments uh, that he, that he made, uh, failed to protect his his legacy.
2: Oh, absolutely. This is, uh, I have written a lot about Johnson, and he's a remarkable president, because if you look at half of what he did, it, it, it's pretty uh, astounding. Even if you're a conservative, uh, many conservatives will admit that the, the, no, the number of programs that he started as president, which, which continue through today, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, funding for higher education, all of this and more, are part of the fabric of, of American life. And And if this had been the only part of his record and his presidency, he would probably be widely admired and considered, uh, even again by the right, as a very effective president and understanding how to do things the right way and using presidential power effectively. But, and it's a big but, there's Vietnam. And the story and history of Vietnam is just a, a very powerful tale for presidents about how Bad policy decisions, in his case on foreign policy, can overwhelm everything else that you do. Uh, and the war in Vietnam for Johnson stirred protests that divided his own party. It led to the election of a Republican uh, to succeed him, uh, who def- Richard Nixon, who defeated Hubert Humphrey, and and it really destroyed his legacy in the eyes of many Americans. It's only recently people are even looking back to Johnson. To understand what he did right. And so, this is an important warning for all presidents, not just Trump, uh, about these enormously consequential mistakes uh, where presidents sometimes double, triple down on bad decisions. Uh, and this will end up overwhelming anything positive that you might have done.
1: And you criticize uh, President Obama for. Um, you know, accomplishing some some good things, but uh, but not concentrating on the politics. And while he was president, uh, Democrats continued to lose on all the other levels.
2: Yeah, this is, a, I, I thought, it was an important aspect of the Obama presidency. He I thought, uh, when I edited his book, what was uh, interesting from the authors is on policy, he was much more effective than we thought. And he really uh, did a lot. He moved the needle on a lot of key issues. And uh he He put together a portfolio, so to speak, that in retrospect is is pretty impressive, especially in such a polarized age but But he didn't give as much attention to the to the state of his own party and many Democrats warned him during those years that he was not providing enough support at the local and state level, that he was putting members of Congress in difficult positions on policy without also providing political cover. Uh, And when his term ends, Democrats are in terrible shape. Uh, The obvious example is President Trump being the victor. Uh, But in Congress, Republicans control Congress. In state legislatures, Republicans have overwhelming control uh, in many states, and same with governorships. And so uh, this is important because uh, no matter what your accomplishments are, if you are followed by the opposition. If you're followed by not just a president, but a Congress that is set to dismantle everything you've done, uh, you have a problem on your hands. And Obama didn't create the kind of coalition that could outlast him, and I think he's seen some of the consequences. Uh, and that hesitation to enter into the political fray continues, uh, with many people noting how silent he since leaving office, uh, even as these very dramatic things are taking place in the Oval Office uh, with a, a president who is ruthlessly opposed to much of what Obama did. Uh,
1: you've also written about the Democrats, some Democrats, um, impeachment fever. Some some top, you know, Nancy Pelosi and others are trying to tamp that down. Uh, the grassroots, uh, some, um, you know, really really want to take over the House and proceed immediately to impeachment. And I believe in your uh, column you threw some cold water on that.
2: Yeah, I think it's a dangerous path, I think, on two levels. One is just, again, move beyond President Trump. We are in an era where this polarization is so intense right now and where the parties are in a place where, Both sides are willing to do a lot to uh, undercut the other. That if we normalize impeachment, uh, the danger would be the danger would be normalizing impeachment. And you could imagine if Democrats move forward with this, it has to be the most solid case you can imagine. Otherwise, this is going to happen when there's a Democrat in in office, and and it's easy to see the impeachment process being a little bit like the filibuster has been, something that was once reserved for high-profile exceptional issues into a normal tool of political combat and we've already seen this to some extent since Richard Nixon's downfall where impeachment is not something that's so unusual and that's dangerous for our democracy Uh, so so it's not that you can't use it uh, but but democrats have to be a hundred percent sure and solid on that this is the only resort uh, and that this is absolutely necessary and then politically, it's unclear if it's the best move. I mean, talking about impeachment is a, a very good way to energize Republicans to support the president, even those who don't love the president. And, and impeachment will distract the Democrats from issues. So they could, if, if they gain control of Congress and if impeachment becomes the focus, it's easy to see how the party might lose sight of economic questions, of issues of immigration, of foreign policy. It will all be about Trump, and the president can turn that against them, talking about an obstructionist Congress and talking about a party that has no ideas. So, so I think the bar has to be incredibly high for the party to move forward with that, should they take control uh, in, in November. If they don't have control, it's really not a, a big issue at this point, because Republicans are not going to move forward on this.
1: I want ask a couple questions about the Mueller investigation-related topics. Um, w- one is, uh, there's speculation about this. Uh, does this end up more like Watergate or more like Iran-Contra or, or something else, do you think?
2: Yeah, so far I see more Iran-Contra, uh, which was a very big scandal in 1986 and 87 involving the Reagan administration uh, and the provision of aid to the Nicaraguan Contras despite a congressional ban, uh, but it was it was complicated. There was no smoking gun evidence that the president directly orchestrated this entire operation. And even though there was a lot of attention to this, and for a while Reagan's approval ratings flipped, in the end it didn't produce, uh, it didn't take down the Reagan administration. And Reagan survived it. Most members of the administration survived. And, and Reagan actually went on Uh, to achieve one of his biggest accomplishments and uh, the peace the peace agreement arms agreement with with the soviets and and so far i think a lot of the Russian investigation is a little bit like that there's a lot of players there's a lot of instances of wrongdoing and a lot of evidence that bad things happen Uh, but you could imagine that president trump himself that there's no evidence of his direct involvement uh, in the entire process and that it's so complicated and uh, multi-faceted this scandal and the Mueller report's conclusions uh, that it doesn't create the kind of political momentum that's going to actually lead to the end of the administration, as opposed to just uh, an uglier moment for the presidency doing some political damage.
1: Second question on this, uh, this is, you know, there are the facts of the case uh, in the Mueller investigation, and uh, I assume when the when uh, Mr. Mueller uh, releases his report, we'll we'll see that, and there'll be a big argument about that. And, um, but I wonder it, it's a whole different era too. And I wonder what your and it is speculation. What if uh, President Nixon had been in office today, and Watergate happened today? Do you think that has a different outcome?
2: Yeah, I, I do. I think uh, there's there's elements of of where we are today that are very different than the early 1970s. One. And and maybe the most important is the way the media works and the existence of a a very partisan, openly conservative media outlets such as Fox News that are supportive of the president, that tend to simply repeat what the president says and and the administration's storyline. And that creates some political insulation for the president, because even... Uh, if Congress or parts of the news media are putting out stories that are damaging about the investigation or Mueller himself releases the report, he can count on uh, networks and, and internet outlets uh, kind of telling a different story and challenging the truth uh, and challenging the findings of any kind of report or smoking gun evidence. Nixon did not have that. So uh, once the smoking gun tape was revealed, He was standing alone. Today, President Trump would not be standing alone, and he would have people with uh, a powerful outlet and audience to speak to. Uh, And and I think we are also in such a polarized era today, it's going to be very harder for those who find evidence of a scandal to move public opinion. Uh, and that was different. In the early 70s, there were more shifts between the GOP and the Democrats, more independent voters. Uh, partisan polarization was not as strong. So you take those two factors, and that provides some comfort, I'm sure, uh, to Trump and his allies.
1: Well talk about uh, this is an article over on CNN. Um, uh, take us to popular popular culture now. Uh, and you wrote this before. Roseanne Barr made her remarks that and the show was canceled. But the headline to this, unlike Roseanne, this show exemplified the best of American politics. What was the show you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that. Uh, so so I wrote that in, in connection with that Family Ties, which which is a, also a show during a conservative era. And uh, this is the story of uh, The Sun, focused on The son played by Michael Keaton of two baby boom hippies. And he's very conservative. He's a... Uh, a Reaganite, and that's the whole uh, premise of the show—the tension between the parents uh, and the son—and uh, that was a different kind of conservatism. Michael Keaton was much more about, uh, you know, free market values and 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 understanding why Reagan meant so much to someone growing up in the 1980s, as as rejecting a lot of the arguments and values of the 1960s and. And that's different. Uh, Roseanne Barr, with her tweet, even with her apologies and explanation, kind of exposed an underside uh, to the conservatism of the period and, and to some of the things we've been talking about in the rhetoric that's it's uglier and nastier. And so uh, the shows, in some ways, I think you know, it's, a, it's a device, but capture some of the changes that have gone on in the conservative coalition that have given room for a President Trump. Uh, and and that are uh, part of what's going on in the electorate.
1: That uh, the, the rhetoric is uglier, and and it it hits us most, of course, in uh, in the interpersonal relationships, right? In our friendships and our families. Here, in family ties, here's a family that's divided by politics, but uh, you know, generally hold together. In the Roseanne, it was just a couple of episodes. They did this. Roseanne and her sister talk and <laughs> argue and then agree to disagree, right? Let's not talk about it. Do you think in, in today's era, you hear about um, you know, that people were not going to get married because we have different politics. Uh, we're, we, we we can't yeah. see Uncle Joe because of his politics. I, is that worse uh, today than it was in times past, or is this just a cyclical thing?
2: Well, that, that according to the polls, that is different, and it's not cyclical. It doesn't start with January 2017, but at least for a decade and a half, we've seen in polling of of people's personal preferences how the politics really matters now. And in some ways, it's replaced religion, uh, whereas you used to see in polls people from different religions were hesitant to marry each other uh, and start families together. They preferred the same religion. Now you see the same thing with politics. Uh, that Republicans and Democrats are unlikely to enter into long-term romances. Uh, And this is pretty notable. Uh, And again, this is an example of a change we've seen. It's been jokes have been Curb Your Enthusiasm, a show that was on several years ago. There was a whole season about the Bleed character Larry David pursuing an actress. And when they're finally about to consummate the relationship, he sees that she has a picture of President George W. Bush uh... in her dressing room and and he leaves at that point they can't they can't really be together because of that uh... and and that's the world where president trump comes from So i think this polarization runs deep it's personal uh... and it affects our our living rooms our dining rooms, and uh... that's why it won't go away so quickly this is how a new generation comes of age they learn this from their families their parents their extended families uh, that you stay loyal to your party and that it means something. So unless you're a rebel and, and the rebellion comes from abandoning the politics of your parents, uh, I think at a personal level, it's going to be very hard for people to discuss these kinds of issues and to interact, and then that's replicated on the national stage.
1: You are listening to Axis Utah, and I'm uh, Tom Williams. Our thanks to uh, Julian Zelizer. Uh, Historian at Princeton University, CNN political analyst, author most recently of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. Interesting discussion there. And uh, we have had an email come in from Steve. Steve says, perhaps it's because Princeton is only 180 miles from Washington, D.C., where the Beltway pundits worship at the altar of both-siderism, that your guest is leaning over so far to blame incivility on structural causes, thus avoiding assigning blame to the real culprit, the GOP. Incivility, demonization of political opponents, and a refusal to work with the other side are all practices promulgated and perfected by the Republican Party and the Republican Party alone. Richard Nixon pioneered the presidential enemies list. Reagan's Interior Secretary James Watts famously distinguished patriots from a different breed, members of the Democratic Party. Newt Gingrich instructed the GOP to rhetorically separate Democrats from quote-unquote normal people. It was a Republican congressman who shouted, You lie! at the Democratic uh, president during the State of the Union address. And Republican political rallies ring with the call, Lock her up, lock her up. In a nationally televised debate, Donald Trump called his Democratic opponent such a nasty woman. And on and on and on. Furthermore, since uh, gaining majorities in the Congress through voter suppression and gerrymandering, The Republican Party has refused to work with Democrats, locking them out of deliberation and only approving legislation which is supported by the majority of the majority, that is Republicans only, with all Democrats excluded from the process. This is the political culture which gave us the likes of Louis Gohmert, Michelle Bachmann and yes, Donald Trump himself, and it will not go away until the Republican Party radically transforms or goes out of business entirely. You can name nothing comparable on the other side because there is nothing comparable. This is not a structural issue, Professor. It is the radical GOP which has sundered civility in American politics. That is Steve. And uh, we'd love to get your comment as well to upraxcess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Intermountain Budge Clinic Obstetrics and Gynecology, offering treatment of female pelvic health symptoms including stress urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, and abnormal menstrual periods. Appointment information and details at budgeobgyn.org. on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at (laughs) devourutah.com.